Guys, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. I am your host, and man, you have no idea how happy I am to have this podcast coming your way today. Yesterday, I sat down in the morning to edit this podcast, to post it, so it was out there for you on time. Sat down with a nice, fresh cup of coffee and spilt it all over my laptop, my MacBook. So uh, I did some quick thinking. I tipped it upside down. I got the hairdryer on it. I melted a couple of keys. I'm not even joking. It's dead serious. Um, the F key is has got bends in it now. The control key fell off, but the computer is turning on when it's plugged in. So man, this feels good to be able to have this podcast coming your way. Uh, I just hope my computer stays plugged in so I can get this all done on time because it's Wednesday now we're getting later in the week but uh, I hope it's worth it guys thank you so much to those of you who have been leaving some nice reviews for the podcast I know if you're enjoying it I ask you to leave a couple of reviews how's this for a review adrenaline junkie 68 I've listened to a hell of a lot of podcasts on running and related topics like exercise physiology and this is right up there with the best thank you adrenaline junkie great content with a nice mix of interesting and well credentialed guests. Now, I'm not going to say too much more of that comment because he goes on to give me lots of compliments. And it just feels weird me reading compliments to myself. So do you want to go and check out how nice he was about me personally? Hey, go and do that. I'm assuming it's a he. Adrenaline Junkie is a very manly name. (laughs) Anyway, here we are. Can you tell I'm happy? Guys, have you checked out the Relax Running membership yet? Let me tell you about it. If you're not a member, we have, there's three main components. Essentially, These are the three. There's other things as well, but these are the three. Technique analysis. So you and I will work one-on-one with your running technique to help you run more efficiently, help you run faster, for longer, help you get rid of any chinks in your armor that might be holding you back. So if that's something that you're interested in, whether you're a runner, a triathlete, some other running-based sport, hit me up. I'm more than happy to work with you on that. We'll also have a personal one-on-one coaching thread, you and I, Uh, to work towards any of your running goals. So whether you're training for an Ironman, you're trying to figure out how to incorporate running training in with the rest of your work, or you're training for your first marathon, or you simply want to train for your first K, uh, your first K, your first 5K, let me know. There's a lot that we can do together there. You're also going to get access to the members. uh, What do you say? It's a toolkit, essentially. It's got videos and some more generic training programs got a community forum there if you're interested in there's a lot on there all right so there's a few options monthly annually it's up to you but we've got a really good community built up over there it's been fun to work with a a whole heap of people so if that's you relaxrunning.com check out the relaxed running membership if you've got any questions before you get on board make sure you let me know that's enough about that guys today we have my favorite exercise nutritionist, Ali McLean. She's been a guest on the podcast before. She's actually one of the most downloaded podcast episodes of all time on Relaxed Running. So it seems as though you guys like her as well. She's a man, she's a smart woman. We cover a lot in this uh, particular conversation. But a couple of my favorite parts, we were speaking about the importance of not only fueling for a race, but fueling uh, after a race and in and around your training sessions in order to be able to make sure that we're taking care of inflammation, that we're well energized, uh, but that we're recovered so we can get back out there and train consistently. Because obviously distance running, one of our biggest goals is not just having one good session, but having good sessions day after day so we're continually improving our running at a higher level. So Ali has a whole heap of stuff. You can check her out at Nutrition Alley, which is nutritionally, but Nutrition Alley. It's a play on words. I like it. Nutrition, E-L-L-Y. I've linked that in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Also, she has a five-week course coming up starting in late July, 25th of July. Make sure you check it out before then. Also linked in the show notes. If you want to work one-on-one with her or get some more specific guidance on how to actually create an eating plan that works for you and your goals, check it out. Anyway, you're going to absolutely love Ali. I know I do. She's a really uh, a really fun chick to talk to, really well-educated on the subject of nutrition as well. So we've got plans to come back and do some more podcasts together in the future. If you like it, make sure you hit her up, give her a little bit of love. But more than anything, make sure if you like it, you check out her course, which is coming up in the end of end of July. So guys, let me get out of your way. Hey, you enjoy the rest of this podcast and I'll see you all next week. Well, we just established that um, I actually didn't realize that you were a, a local Torquay girl. For some reason, I thought you guys were still in Melbourne and, and Brian came down here to do his um to do his yoga classes just a couple of times a week. But what is he set up with a studio and stuff down here that belongs to him? Yeah, so so Rai has got It's All Yoga, which is um, a studio in Torquay. So he took that over in December of last year. 
and we sort of jumped ship. Yeah, we left Melbourne end of October last year and I've been in Torquay ever since. And like, everyone's like, oh, how's it going? You know, is all right. I'm like, feels like I've lived here my whole life, you know? <laughs> Seriously. I was it's... back down in Melbourne last night and uh, I go down there a couple of times a week, obviously, to tell my funny mm. jokes. And it's yeah. and honestly, like, I love it down there. I love to visit, but it feels like a lifetime ago. We actually moved down here uh, in December, so not that long after you. And we're the yeah. same. I'm like, what What took us so long? It's such a good part of the world. Obviously, I'm sort of like 40 minutes away from you, but similar sort of vibe, Torquay, Queenscliff. Yeah, totally similar. And um, yeah, I think like COVID was that nice, just like, you know, it gave everyone like permission to sort of step away from the city because things became a lot more virtual and for me, that's like, that's what I was waiting for because my business was largely virtual before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, all of my Melbourne clients were forced to go virtual. So it wasn't just my sort of interstate international clients. It was everybody who was virtual. And then I didn't have as much like hesitation about moving down the coast because I was like, all right, well, I'll still have plenty of people to work with. And, um, and you know, in the meantime, get working on a clinic space in Torquay. It's so, so true. It's so yeah, funny it just works. looking at, um, it's been so convenient for people who run their own business at the moment because all of a sudden everyone's been forced to, to, to learn how to, to communicate virtually, haven't they? Like I reckon even myself, yeah. I, was, I was all about Skype. Like we're talking on Zoom right now. I was all about yeah. Skype until about a year ago. And then all of a sudden everyone was just on Zoom. So I was like, all right, I better just learn how to do it. And I, I personally enjoy the conversations here because I reckon the final product comes up better on YouTube and everything. Just the way that that, it's structured. Yeah. Maybe it's just my lack of technical ability, but here we are. I'm, uh, I'm in a similar boat to you. Like a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing now is virtual with like a little mm. bit of face-to-face, but yeah, it's been, it's been such a, I don't want to say blessing in disguise because I know some people have copped it sweet, but from like a, a, a working um, remotely, it's, it's been a blessing in yeah. disguise in, in that regard. Absolutely. And it just feels like a big playground, don't you think? Like, you know, you've got like all of these running tracks that you can choose from, you know, do you want beach vibe? Do you want, nature vibe and it just yeah it feels like such a playground being down the ocean it's so good I actually ocean. I went for a run with a I got a mate who lives in Torquay and I went for a run from mm. his place I'm not sure what that part of Torquay is called but he's sort of up on a hill it feels like a newer kind of area that's a really uh a broad <laughs> overview of what I'm trying to do but he's down toward Jan Juk and we we yeah, ran okay. fr- yep. from his place down past Jan Juk the other day along like a nice gravel path that follows the coast and uh, yeah. we ran past on a day which I would have been too scared to go surfing, but it looked unreal. Like we were, we were a few hundred metres from the waves and it was like perfect barrel waves that you would see on a postcard yeah. from Bells Beach. But yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Just like the, um, the playground's a good way to put it. I've been getting right yeah. into my, I used to like, I've always liked the, the cold water swimming or the ice baths and the, just the challenge of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, um, yeah. We're about 100 metres from the, the Queenscliff Beach. Like you go over the road, past a little bit of bush, and there's the water. So every morning I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm doing my Wim Hof <laughs> breathing techniques. Oh, wow. it's, like, it's been like a really interesting welcome to Queenscliff because a lot of the locals are like, mate, what are you doing? Like what, the other yeah. yesterday morning, oh, two mornings ago, I was, have you ever seen Wim Hof? Have you seen his breathing exercises? I, like I know of him and I, like I know every his, his exercises I haven't seen him do it though they're really intense like if you watch it you're like this guy is mental and I was sitting on the beach there was no one around and I was like all right I'll just do my my breathing exercises yeah, and I started yeah. getting into it and all of a sudden this little old lady she's about 70 years old she steps down onto the beach and she's like oh are you okay <laughs> I was like oh so sorry I'm just the new guy in town well it's good to be here yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, oh, so here we are. But it's good to catch up. I well, was um, I was having a look through some got... of our stats the other day, and uh, I was like, far out. Everyone loves Ali. <laughs> well, I just, I couldn't care less, except for the fact that my partner's been on the show. So I'm just like, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I've had more listens than you have. <laughs> he's he actually, I think he's in like the top six as well. So I should, um, okay, I should take good. a screenshot well, and let you know where he stands. But, um, but honestly, like, I'm not just saying this to, to blow up both of your tyres. I've had so much good mm-hmm. feedback from po- both of those podcasts. And personally, I wanted to, to talk to you now because I still feel like 
there's there's been it's been really interesting to talk to a lot of elite level level athletes and coaches mm. who are, mm. are still talking a lot about uh, carbohydrate as like the main fuel source. And I'll let for yeah. anyone who's who's maybe hasn't heard your last podcast, I'll let you give a bit of an overview of you know what you do and your your personal approach to diet and nutrition and and, and your beliefs around that. But it's it's really interesting because I remember finishing the last podcast and being like, man, this is this is a new world to me. It's a new territory. Yeah. I don't really under diet in general, in fairness, is something I still have a lot to learn about. I'll, I'll yeah. do like the basics of like trying to eat things as close to its natural state as possible. Yeah. But that's about the extent of my knowledge a lot of the time until our last podcast. Anyway, after our chat, it was it was really interesting to me just how many top level athletes were like, yeah, so I'm a big fan of carb loading. And, and I was like, wow, it's, it's a really heavily entrenched idea that this is the best way to fuel. And I thought, okay, I've got to reach out because I still feel like there's there's quite a few, I, I don't know if you could, if they're myths or if they're just misunderstandings or or what around the, the subject of running. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's such a, like, first of all, running isn't running, right? Like we know that there's the 5K runners, the 10K runners, the 21K runners, the 42K runners, and they're all different events. So they all draw on different fuel sources, right? Like, so you've got a... Um, you know, a marathon runner who's doing a, a marathon in, you know, three hours, three and a half, four hours, that's an endurance event. So the fueling looks very different to a runner who is doing a 21K run, which is, you know, depending on who you are, you know, anywhere between like hour 18, hour and 50, two hours and 15. And so that event like becomes this like middle ground bet between not quite endurance and sometimes endurance so fueling looks different and then you've got like a 5 10k run and they look very different to the fueling for you know an elite marathon runner versus a sub elite versus a weekend warrior marathon runner so I think maybe where some of the confusion comes from is because we try and band this this subject of like sports fueling for runners into one subject when in actual fact it's not there's there's differences in the way that athletes fuel depending on um, their level of I guess expertise and where they where they sit in the rank are they elite or weekend warrior and then also what event they're doing now the work that I do is really well suited to the endurance athlete so like as we int introduced the audience to in our last chat I I work in this lower carbohydrate, healthier fat fueling space, which is like this middle ground between doing a keto diet versus doing a high carb traditional sort of following the food pyramid diet. So this lower carbohydrate diet is anywhere between sort of 80 grams of carbohydrates per day up to 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. Um, and we use this, this, this diet, this protocol to help the athlete become better fat adapted. And I can go into that if you want me to, but essentially for the endurance athlete, like the benefit of that fat adaptation is, 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 is in being able to create this like dual fuel system whereby the athlete isn't just reliant on carbohydrate, but they can also use fat as a fuel source. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Sorry, keep going. I think I interrupted you there. No, you're fine. I was just going to say it's more relevant to the endurance athlete because, you know, the, the person who's out there longer, two hours, four hours, six hours, you know, we're talking maybe ultras and triathlons in that sort of six hour zone. Um, they, they run the risk of like gastrointestinal upset or, you know, bonking or hitting the, hitting the wall, so to speak. They run the risk of both of those things if they're not like, um, if they're not fat adapted, if they don't have access to that dual fuel system of using two major fuel sources, fat and carbohydrate. Um, and that's, that's a lot of the work that I do. It's sort of training the athlete to have that dual fuel system so they can use fat and carbohydrate and get away from this mentality that carbohydrate is the only option, mm. um, which is, which is, which is where these sort of um, more age-old uh, protocols around carbohydrate loading come into play. It's assuming that the athlete has only got access to the one fuel source, which is carbohydrate slash muscle glycogen, which is the stored form of carbohydrate. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's it's interesting to me because I, I would say that I have 
I, I don't know, this could be just me having tickets on myself. I would say I'd have slightly passed an entry level understanding of, of nutrition. Like it's probably being generous to myself, like in, in, in the sense of like, could I recommend healthy foods? Of course. Do you know what I mean? And I think my diet would, would probably be pretty symbolic of that. But um, all you have to do is, is jump on Google and there's just so much noise on the subject of, of diet. And I, I actually did like a little experiment just getting ready to, to talk to you and, and had a look on Google at all the different recommendations from, from different bloggers on what people should be eating and when they should be eating it. And I love that there's information and that there's people writing about this stuff. But what I find overwhelming, it's like, all right, how the heck do I know who to listen to? Because there yeah. is so much noise and I know not everyone sort of studied it like you have and they're not so entrenched especially in the sports world talking mm. about nutrition so it, it's hard sometimes especially with the limited amount of time that you might want to dedicate to researching diet to go all right how like this argument sounded really really convincing but that's completely Where the opposite to what Ali said do you know what I mean yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I find that really overwhelming and is that something that you deal with like people coming to you and go look I'm 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 confused. I just, I, I believe you and you make sense, but do I, do I follow this or the thing that's been working for me today? hundred percent. Absolutely. Like I actually just spoke with somebody yesterday who contacted me after listening to our last podcast interview. And he was like, I really resonated with what you were saying in that interview. I'm still so confused though, because I see all of these mixed messages uh, and it happens all of the time, but that's, why I love working one-on-one -on -one as a nutritionist because then you get to take the individual and their goals and their health history and their lifestyle as well like what's going to work for them and what are they training for and you know do they have kids do they work full-time can they cook can they not cook all of that stuff and then you can take what the evidence suggests and your clinical experience of what you see working and then you get to marry all of that information up to put together something for the individual and I think what happens out there and why there is so much noise in the space is because you've got information coming from so many different places like nutrition is a really personal and relative thing right so then you've got bloggers who are writing on their personal experience and like how sort of emotive is that like I went from zero to hero using this diet. And so they try and sell that protocol and they could just be like a model or, you know, a good looking bloke. And people are like, oh, he did it that way. I'm going to do it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's no sort of like evidence there. It's more, more like a, it's just their experience that, you know, someone's trying to learn from. And then you've got people that are looking at the evidence, but maybe from different snapshots, snapshots in time or, um, you know, evidence, you know, that's either good or not so good. So there's just, it's a hotly debated topic, nutrition, like it absolutely is. And then you, you layer on top of that. So it's hotly debated because it's a fast evolving science. And then you layer on top of that, that everybody is different. So people respond differently to the evidence that's out there from research and you, you've got to be able to discern, you know, between research and, and what's like, you know, how you apply it to the individual. Um, and then sports nutrition, like, my God, it's a whole other level of, you know, how do you know what to do? And that's largely because like the guidelines that we have around how much fuel to be having and how much to be eating and that sort of stuff. I take them as just guidelines because everybody is so individual. And I sort of say to my clients from the get go, like I can give you a calorie guide, like a daily calorie goal, but you and I are going to have to work together to really refine what that goal looks like. Or I can give you a guideline around your macronutrient background breakdown, but you and I are going to have to work together to refine that because we'll learn about how you respond in time. And similar to like race day fueling, you never do anything new on race day. Uh, you always want to have some like some practice in place to, to some, some opportunities to sort of practice your race day fueling strategy, not just once, probably two times or three times so that you, the individual, and then, you know, your practitioner, if you've got, got one, can learn from that that experience and then build on that and help you evolve your protocol for future events yeah. so 
yeah, there's a lot of nuance in nutrition. And I think that's why it does help to work with a practitioner if you've got the luxury of doing it um, to help you sort of cut through all of the information that is out there that probably has some level of relevance, but then helping you to understand what's most relevant to you as an individual and your history and your goals. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems as well, like it's a, I don't know, this could just because I'm not as heavily involved in the field, but I've, I've heard a lot more about using fat as a, as a more primary source of uh, fueling over the last maybe five years, it, it really came to my attention about five yeah. years ago that this is something that someone like that people were doing and doing really successfully. And it blew my mind because I remember as a kid of the nineties um, and a kid who thought he was being healthy, my idea of as like a 12 year old kid was if I went into the supermarket and I saw yogurt with, okay, it's 99% fat free. I was like, Oh, perfect. That's exactly what I need. And as a result, my, my diet that I thought was so healthy was, was so highly filled with processed sugar um, that I just had no idea that I was consuming. And it, it's weird. There seems to be this real transition of, uh, I think the transition's well and truly taken place now between this, all right, like keep fat completely out of your diet to hang on a second. Like this is actually a really valuable source of, of, of energy and, and nutrition for, especially in athletics or, or running from what yeah. I can tell. So like, what do you, do you know the story there? Like, what was the story of, of, of this more, um, it's not ketogenic purely, is it? It's sort of like a, a mid road. You just explained before a mid road mm. between like the keto and the carb diet, but, but what has, what has sort of fueled the, the pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the exact timeline? Because I feel like in 2001, I was sold on blueberry yogurt. It was 99% fat free. And in 2005, I was counting my feelings and being like, I know exactly why this has happened. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, yeah, so there are a couple of key points in the timeline. So number one, going back to really where the low fat started. So we're sort of winding back to the late 50s, early 60s, whereby there was a scientist called Ansel Keys, um, done a lot of groundbreaking research, but he conducted this study, which has long been referred to as the seven countries study. Um, and his hypothesis was that in the countries where there were um, greater rates of saturated fat consumption, that there would be higher incidence of heart disease. And um, what he ended up dis discovering was that in seven countries, there did appear to be an association between saturated fat consumption. So we're talking the fats that you might find in animal products, you know, dairy, butter, uh, and of course, meats as well. Uh, and yeah, he found an association between the consumption of those foods and incidence of heart disease. Uh, and that, that paper was written up. It was called the Seven Countries Study. It was printed on the front of the New York Times and it took off like wildfire. And that's when this whole industry boomed behind it. This industry of, well, we'll cut the fat because that must be what's causing heart disease. Oh, but doesn't taste so good without the fat. <laughs> so we'll add sugar and we'll do everything we can to remove the fat and in, in the meantime, maintain, you know, it's, it's appealing nature by adding sugar to the product. Um, and so, yeah, we got caught up in this low fat era. Um, and it wasn't until around about 10 years ago where they actually discovered that this seven countries study, so to speak, actually looked at 21 different countries. And if you look at all 21 countries, not just the seven countries, there was no association between saturated fat consumption and incidence of heart disease. So it was like the, like, I'm going to get the metaphor wrong because I always get metaphors wrong. So does Jesse, like... and it's going to make me laugh so much. I love a good <laughs> wrong metaphor. My wife just so still trying to thought. She's always like, all right, let's get this ball on the road. I'm like, baby, you've combined two sayings just there. So Ali, go for it. You're in good company and I'm sure I'll appreciate it. I don't even know how to use the analogy, but like the, you know, like the rabbit jumped the coop or something like that. You know, the information got let out way yeah. too early yeah. and the articles were written about these seven countries and it was like, it was so far gone, but, you know, by the time they realized that it was actually 21 countries and, you know, it would have made the US and the Heart, Heart Association and all of that look really dumb, you know, when they realized that this industry was on, on the back of some pretty flawed um, writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is why like the, the reins have been released a little bit when it comes to fat consumption is because we know that 
all right, well, there are some undeniably good fats, unless you speak to, you know, certain parts of the plant-based community, but mm. community, there are some undeniably good fats, like our monounsaturated fats, our omega-3 fatty acids that we get from, you know, things like oily fish or flaxseed oil, avocados, walnuts, olive oil, those fats have been, I guess, growing in their, like, people's awareness of, of the, the value that they add to the diet. Um, but it's only more recently that be, like, because of this research that's basically been debunked, like the myth around saturated fat has been debunked and there's more research being done around, well, actually saturated fats isn't, aren't that bad. I think it was a 2010 study that was like a meta-analysis. So it looked at multiple studies on the impact of saturated fat and heart disease in total, there are about 350,000 people that were part of this meta-analysis. And the conclusion of that study was that saturated fat consumption has no detrimental impact on risk for cardiovascular disease. So pretty significant. And so, yeah, it's since that point that people have started to relax a little bit about saturated fat consumption. But it's still a slow message because I think they say that, like, it takes about 17 years for something to be like um, identified before it starts, something to be identified in the science before it starts to become mainstream, as in before it starts to enter like um, the universities. So mm. where the doctors are doing their learning, for example. And so you'll still speak to a lot of physicians who are, you know, learning the, um, the Australian Healthy Eating Guidelines, you know, off by heart. I, had, I interviewed a GP last year and she said that's exactly, exactly what she had to do for GP school. She had to learn the healthy eating guidelines verbatim. Uh, but the problem with that is that the healthy eating guidelines still sort of lean on this, you know, only have small amounts of fat, make sure it's omega-3 fatty acids, don't have saturated fat. And we know that it's not true. You know, we've got that 2010 study, which totally shows that saturated fat won't increase risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, there's been even more research coming out as well. So that's, I guess, a bit of the timeline around like day-to-day -day nutrition and how, you know, saturated fats and fat in the diet won't kill us through, through heart disease. Uh, and so naturally that filters into the sports community as well. But I guess alongside that, there's research being done on, you know, the role that um, fats play in supporting this metabolic efficiency. So creating this dual fuel system where the athlete, especially the endurance athlete, can effectively use fats and carbohydrate as a fuel source. And this sort of started in the 70s. So I introduced you in our last chat to exercise physiologist Phil Maffetone. And he uh, sort of, he was the first coach exercise physiologist back in the 1970s who was trying to like fat adapt his athletes. Fat adapted is the term we use for an athlete who, who creates like a dual fuel system. So the athlete that can use fats and carbs as a fuel source. Yeah. He first started doing in this in the 1970s where he was completely not mainstream, um, but you know, going about his thing with his athletes. Uh, and it's more like, I think about 2014, 2016 was when the FASTA study was released, which was a study looking at um, fat adapted athletes. And so, it, yeah, the last 10 years, there's been more research on fat adapted athletes showing that, well, actually, if you take an athlete and you give them sort of the 12 weeks to create that metabolic efficiency so transition from like a sugar burner quote unquote to an athlete that can tap into both fuels the fats and the carbs um you know you know can they do it can they can they outrun can they perform so we're starting to see the benefits of the fat adaptation and from my point of view it's about looking at the athlete as a whole so not just necessarily like how do you perform between, you know, 7am and 8.20 when you're doing your half marathon? Um, but how do you recover so that you can carry on being a great dad, a great friend, a great family member, you know, the rest of that day and the rest of that week? You know, I see the goal as an athlete as being recovery, like mm. recover well so you can keep training and, and show up as an athlete and for everything else that you have to do in life. And that's where I see a lot of the real benefits around, um, 
a lower carbohydrate, healthy fat protocol. Yeah. You touched on something as well earlier that I didn't even consider, which I'm sure would make your your life even more difficult. And that's just the, you mentioned about the the difference in opinion, not only within like the blogosphere, but between like the plant-based and the, and the, what do you call it? Like the ketogenic diet. Oh, well, mm. does that make sense? Is that the right comparison? And you know what I'm trying to say. So like the carb-based yeah, yeah. versus the, the, the fat-based. And uh, it is, it's almost like a religion, isn't it? Like there's so much noise around. I've listened to a couple of podcasts where I'll I'll finish one. I'm like, all right, I have to start really increasing how much meat I eat. And then I'll listen to one the next day. I'm like, all right, I'm a vegetarian again. And (laughs) it's like what you said before, there's so much noise. So yeah, when you're talking about, uh, what was it? Metabolic, not metabolic efficiency, metabolic, metabolic efficiency. Efficiency flexibility we also call it or fat adaptation yes see that's uh it's funny you say flexibility because i was listening to one of the guys i i I like listening to is a guy called mark sisson i'm not sure if you Mm -hmm. know him uh, primal blueprint Blueprint. yeah Yeah. and uh he actually used that term a while ago which i really like just speaking about metabolic flexibility and i thought that's a really Mm. interesting concept because he was using it in the sense that he's not so i'm very black and white i'm either i feel like i find it easier to go all in or or you know, just do whatever I want. He was yeah. explaining that, uh, you know, he, he he likes to, you know, stick to a pretty regimented diet, but every now and then he'll have, a, he'll have some pasta and a bowl of ice cream. And he was explaining this metabolic flexibility idea that it, I'm not 100% sure how to break that down or exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. But I like the understanding I got was it sort of teaches your body to be able to deal with these different inputs and these different, yeah. um, I guess, sources yeah. of, of fuel. But uh, he's, I think he's maybe in his seventies now, so he's not necessarily looking at elite performance in the sense that we're yeah. talking about it in, but, but one of the things that I was curious about, and, and you touched on earlier when you said that, you know, when you say you're running, not every runner is doing the exact same thing. Uh, are we looking at, um, a fat adapted athlete as more efficient over the, the longer stuff, or if a 1500 meter runner came to you and said, all right, I'm looking for a way to improve. Is this diet right for me? And I guess that can, uh, it's probably a broad answer in the sense that you got to look mm. at, you know, not only the lead up to the race and just after it, but making sure that you're nurturing your body uh, all the way through competition. So yeah. What, what sort of approach do you take when you're dealing with athletes training for different distances? Yeah, absolutely. So the like fat adaptation, I guess really did first start as something that would support um, endurance athletes in their events. So mm. like, you know, being able to take an athlete who let's say previously would have been reliant on 80 to 90 grams of exogenous carbohydrates during an event to take them through the fat adaptation process. So then in an event situation, they only need maybe 40 to 60 grams of carbohydrate in an event. And, you know, for anyone who's had to carry fuel on them before for an event, you can start to appreciate like, oh, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't have to carry 90 grams of carbs and it'd be a lot easier to consume, you know, not 90 grams of carbs. So there's like really obvious benefits for the endurance athlete, like in becoming fat adapted for an event day um, scenario. For the like the shorter course athlete, you know, the person that is doing 1500 meters, their, their event is very much fueled on muscle glycogen, right? So I don't know how long it takes, you know, let's say person X to do their 1500 meters, but it, you know, it's what it would be talking about. Like four minutes is like a minutes? really solid time. Yeah. Probably four minutes for a 1500 meter yeah, runner. Okay. As a guy, but honestly, if you're a, if you're more an entry level fifteen hundred meter runner who's just getting started, yeah, somewhere around what you just said, yeah, yeah, maybe that ten minutes was like my high school time. Yeah, um, mine too, but- to be fair, or my primary time maybe. <laughs> but I was I was fit. I was I was in the zone. <laughs> I was just thrown into it because I was the only girl at my school willing to put their hand up and do it. Um, So, you know, this person is exercising for a much shorter period of time. It's a lot more power. So there's a lot more muscle glycogen required, which means they can't afford to be glycogen depleted before they start the event, which means they've got to make sure glycogen stores are nice and um, full. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, therefore there's no sort of like low carb, um, fueling in the lead up to the day and there's no sort of like cutting carbs in the lead up to the event but I still work with these athletes because of their day-to-day requirements for like um, good recovery so you know we're looking at what are all the things that could get in the way of an athlete's ability to recover and therefore their ability to get up and perform and train the next day 
And this is again, where we look at the athlete as a whole. So, you know, inflammation within their body. So they're doing a lot of training. They're going to be exposed to a lot of training induced inflammation, a lot of training induced lactic acid. So from a dietary point of view, I want to make sure that we're doing all the, all we can to attenuate that. Right. So we're taking care of the digestive health. We're making sure that they haven't got sort of bacterial overgrowth in their gut microbiome. And this might be going a little bit off topic, but we can have bacterial overgrowths, which the bacteria themselves produce lactic acids. So if you've got an athlete who's like high carb, throwing back gels, lots of sugar, because they've previously been told you want fast, um, fast absorbing, you know, high carb foods, that athlete could be exposed to bacterial overgrowth that's contributing to lactic acid production, which you know, guess what, when they go into a high intensity session where they're producing their own lactic acid and they've got bacteria in their gut that producing lots of lactic acid, you know, then this athlete's got a lot to mop up and, and deal with. So that's just one example of how we look at, or I look at the athlete more as a whole to say, all right, well, how is a diet not just supporting you on an event or a training situation, but how is the diet supporting you as a whole and in your ability to recover mm. so like a like a power athlete um wouldn't be as low carb as a endurance athlete they certainly wouldn't need to be as high carb as let's say the food pyramid in a training scenario so like food pyramid is anywhere between like 400 600 grams of carbs per day so we could still like allow like a power athlete to train on 200 grams of carbs per day but one of the biggest things in sports nutrition is actually timing. So mm. like the timing of when to have your nutrition to, to help you, you know, recover the best, then train the best, then, then perform the best. Uh, and so a lot of what I do with athletes is just looking at timing. And that's exactly what I do with, um, with a, with a power-based athlete is looking at like, okay, well, how much carb are they having right after their training session? Cause that's the opportunity. Like after the training session, that's the window of opportunity to replenish muscle glycogen. Um, and so in the power athlete, we might be looking at more muscle glycogen after a training session, um, you know, versus the endurance athlete, sorry, the power athlete. Yeah. We're looking at replenishing with higher amounts of carbohydrate after the training session versus the endurance athlete, they've just done a recovery session, rolled their legs over, maybe it was a 90 minute session, then, you know, there'd be a lot less carb coming in after that session, because it's a lot less glycolytic, there's a lot less muscle glycogen being used. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how well I answered that question. No, no, like, no, that, that made a lot of sense. Yeah, no, that okay. was that was really good. I was, I was curious to pick your brain as well on, uh, there's a I think for me, like if I was coming to you as a professional athlete and I was so used to, you know, the way that I was eating and I was a little bit nervous to make changes because of maybe a temporary setback in performance as my body just got used to the, the, the new um, fuel sources or the new the yeah. energy sources, it, it could be difficult to try and make that, a, that adjustment initially or, or to see the benefit of it, like whether that's a health perspective or from a performance perspective it could just be like a little bit of a, a limiter. So I know it's quite yeah. an individualized thing and you said it before, but, but roughly how long does the, the transition take from an athlete who's, you know, sort of carb fueled to fat fueled completely? Like, is there a, a general range of time? I think you said 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we say two to 12 weeks. So you ideally want to allow 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, and so... Like I'll give you some examples, like, you know, I, I've worked with um, footballers. So, you know, I would call them guys that have got to be able to produce force and power for an extended period of time. The time to sort of really change their diet and, you know, work on becoming fat adapted is not during the season, probably mm. not even in the depths of pre-season either the time to start doing that is when the season comes to an end and before they enter pre-season uh, and most of the like the the footballers that I've worked with have approached me for support because they've got to lose some body fat mm -hmm. uh, or because they've got niggling injuries and they're concerned about like inflammation in their body that's just not being that's not being taken care of oh, so I didn't even think about inflammation 
yeah yeah so like that's just an example of an individual not an endurance athlete but still needs to use food to get the most out of their ability to be an athlete yeah so body composition and inflammation um so that's just a great example of how reducing reducing reliance on carbohydrate as a fuel source can help the whole athlete but in that but in that individual this one particular individual it wasn't during the season that we were making massive changes to their diet it was at the end of the season you know when they had a time to pause and really focus on their nutrition and not worry about some of the potential risks of just like trying to become fat adapted Mm. Um, and the potential risk is that if you take an athlete who's very reliant on carbohydrate and you put them on a low carb diet like let's say we try and do it quickly we put them on a low carb diet for two weeks their body won't yet have transitioned to being able to access the fat, okay, access the fat stores. Mm-hmm. Think of carb access as being really easy to achieve, fat access as being something that takes the transition period. So, you know, there's the risk of that athlete, this type of athlete feeling like in those first two weeks, first two weeks, like they've just got heavy legs, heavy legs, can't lift them, can't get my top end. And so they can feel flat. So I wouldn't try and transition like a footballer midway through the season or pre-season, just like I wouldn't even try and transition an endurance athlete during their, during their mm-hmm. season. So it's about working with the individual where they are in, at, you know, at any given point in time um, and timing things. So, you know, if a, an endurance athlete came to me and said, I want to be fat adapted, I've got a race in four weeks. I'd say, great, I want to help you in that journey, but let's look at like the next four weeks as, you know, one particular goal in mind. Uh-huh. And we'll work on food quality and training recovery and we'll refine your fueling strategy for the event. But in terms of truly becoming fat adapted, like let's put that on the cards for next season's event and truly go through the process over a proper 12-week period. Yeah, so any footballers that are listening to this, considering that there's only eight weeks till they can start drinking lots of beers, maybe we've got a new pre-season plan for them to consider. But I want to talk to you about inflammation because uh, like the energy side of things is really interesting to me, obviously, but the idea that, of course, this is, is going to be something that impacts inflammation. And I know as someone who spent a lot of time running and, and had to deal with, you know, I'm sure various levels, maybe without even realising it, of inflammation in my body, I often think of inflammation being the cause of purely physical impact. But when you think about the, mm. the fuel that you're putting in your body, I'm sure some fuels are, are more inclined to increase inflammation and decrease inflammation. And uh, so like, can you just walk me through that process a little bit? Because I think inflammation is sort of a, I don't want to say a hot word at the moment, but it's a word that's sort of been brought to my attention more uh, recently and something that when I'm doing my cold water swims in the morning, I'm thinking, oh, mate, this is so good for your body because of the inflammation. And uh, yeah. yeah, but I, I really have a, a less than entry level knowledge into, you know, how to how to help that part of my body improve. Yeah. So like, yeah, inflammation is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and I think people do have sort of little understanding of what it is, but, you know, you've got chronic inflammation, oh, sorry, you've got acute inflammation, which is like, you know, basically jargon for the stuff that's happening right here and now so you've Mm -hmm. got acute inflammation in response to some sort of stress you know a cut on the skin for example and your body comes in and deals with that and then you've got chronic inflammation which is when your body your immune system is chronically trying to deal with um, a source of stress so then you've got training and training is a stress on the body right like your making your muscles work harder, making your organs work harder, and that contributes to a source of inflammation. And every athlete is constantly trying to recover from the exercise-induced inflammation. The harder the session, you know, the more exercise-induced inflammation, the more mopping up there is to do. But, um, you know, we've got things in place to help mop up with that, help mop that up. We've, we've got antioxidants, within the body and that's why we always talk about like antioxidant rich foods eat them you know yeah um but it's true we want like the the vitamin c's and the zincs and those antioxidants to come in through the diet to help attenuate inflammation so you've got exercise induced inflammation but then there's also inflammation that can be induced by excess carbohydrates so the burning of carbohydrate as a fuel source 
contributes to these prooxidants, which are called reactive oxygen species, which essentially a source of inflammation. The burning of fat doesn't do the same thing. So from a contribution point of view, it's another benefit of your body being able to better burn fat for fuel. And we're not just talking about in a training scenario or an event scenario, we're talking day to day. Mm. Like, you know, when you're going about your day to day business, are you in more of a sugar burning mode or in more of a fat burning mode? The more you can be in that fat burning mode, you know, the less inflammation that'll be created, you know, day in, day out that your body then has to deal with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, cre- you know, create the environment where there's not as much inflammation being produced um, by taking care of your gut health and, you know, teaching your body how to use fat day to day. That's like part one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. part two is realizing that your diet has the potential to help you recover from inflammation or prevent chronic inflammation from being there and that's where like a really nutrient dense diet that does have lots of antioxidants in it polyphenols from plants vitamin c zinc selenium these things that help to mop up the inflammation and also a diet that doesn't have pro-inflammatory foods like processed carbohydrates or trans fatty acids that we find in processed foods Um, For some people, there will be other triggers for them that are pro-inflammatory, you know, top of the list, things like dairy, for example. Mm -hmm. So like there's so much detail that we can go into around like how the diet does help to to manage inflammation in an athlete or at least prevent excess unnecessary inflammation in the athlete. Yeah, I, I think I told you last time we spoke about my experience with dairy, didn't I? I'm trying no. to remember. I, I don't know. So so I've had the part of so I, I don't eat dairy anymore, right? And yeah. Oh, you did, you did. That, yeah. So anyone who's wondering, I the long story short is I had two sinus surgeries and I had it was because of just constant inflammation through my sinuses. I had nasal polyps. I was getting ready for a third. And the doctors just kept prescribing antibiotics and saying, All right, this is yeah, you've just got an allergy. Unfortunately, this is gonna be what you have to do. And Jesse's grand said to me, mate, that's ridiculous. Try getting off dairy. And um, probably after a month, um, I had just none of the side effects, which I'd had for about eight years of just chronic sinusitis. It was part of the reason I finished up with my running. Um, And it it just blew my mind that it was, you touched on the fact that, um, I think you did, maybe I just inferred this, but you were speaking about like a doctor's education is is so often they'll go to a a university or they'll, they'll try and they'll try and speak about nutrition and there's not a lot of education going into a lot of doctors there. Like they might be really well trained on uh, antibiotics and, you know, the way that different tablets and stuff can impact our bodies. But the idea of actually fixing things just through the food that we eat is it's, I'm not sure if it's still, but I know for a long time, it was a bit of a foreign concept to like a lot of the medical world and having a a few friends who are in that scene now, they say, yeah, well, it's still, it's still, you know, you've got to sort of do your own research a little bit as well, because most of the attention's pointed in in a different direction, but that's a random tangent to bring us back to something you said. And I think you answered it um, without me even asking the question, but you're speaking about gut health and uh, that was sort of stage one in, in sort of making a transition or looking after your diet. And I was going to ask you like, for, for an athlete out there who's like, all right, I'd actually like to take some practical steps in improving my gut health. If it, I'm sure it's just like our health, there's always things that we can improve and adjust, even if we think mm-hmm. we're healthy. So um, I was going to ask you what some of those steps to, towards improving that, that gut health could be. And I think you sort of mentioned it with, with some of the foods that you just referred to a, a moment ago. Sorry, that was a long tangent. You said to me, you felt like you went on a tangent last podcast. That was a king of a tangent. So apologies to everyone. I hope that made sense. That's okay. I I, like, first of all, I think it just highlights the power of food um, Mm. in that, you know, you had surgery, multiple courses of antibiotics, and then it was the removal of dairy that ended up like being the, the, like the, the linchpin for you. Mm -hmm. Like it, it happens time and time again. I had a client once who'd been working with a gastroenterologist for 30 years on his ulcerative colitis, which is mm-hmm. an irritable bowel disease. The gastroenterologist, you know, very well educated, very well experienced, told this person black and blue, do not change your diet. It will not change your ulcerative colitis, symptom, ulcerative colitis symptoms. You need to be medicated. This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So this person came and saw me after 30 years of being on medication, just thinking, 
I'll just go speak to a nutritionist. I'll just do it. I'll go speak to a nutritionist and see what comes of it. He was medicated, but still going to the bathroom seven to eight times, seven to eight times per day, which was good for him. You can imagine how like, how going to the bathroom seven or eight times per day would really reduce your productivity and confidence. (laughs) Um, We removed gluten from his diet, which is a wheat wheat protein. And within two days, his bowel motions had gone to like two to three a day, um, formed, beautiful. And I don't know how often you talk about poo on the show, but there we have. We've just talked about it. Um, (laughs) That'll be the intro. (laughs) (laughs) This person, 30 years of medication, 30 years of being told, do not change your diet. It will not influence your, your disease. And then he changed it and two days later, like all symptoms like resolved. Um, That's the power of food. And I guess, and he, his doctor would probably would have said to him, Oh, you know, you can try the nutritionist if you want, but it's probably going to be a bit woo woo. And you know, that's what I I literally Um, had this conversation with my mate the other day. Who's uh, he was out of shape. He was overweight for a few years. And he's gradually started to get into some better shape and started to pay a bit more attention to it, like the foods he's eating. He, he literally had that conversation with his, his doctor because he wanted to go in and get more of a detailed blood test. And the doctor's like, yeah. why? Like, what, what's the, what do you want to do it for? He's like, oh, I'm just, I'm trying to find out like the reaction that my body's having to different foods and things that I'm doing. And the doctor, he, he reckons that the doctor, for whatever reason, started to get quite defensive about it and was basically having that same conversation. Like, this is ridiculous. It's un- if you've not, no symptoms, or you've got nothing that's going wrong in your body, there's, it's completely unnecessary for you to be able to, you know, look at your bloods. Mm-hmm. He's like, mate, I'm either going to get it here. I'm just going to go somewhere else. So can you help me out? He ended up getting it done, but it blew my mind that there was someone in the medical scene who would even hesitate at, at looking at, you know, not only blood levels, but questioning the impact that food had. Cause you, you hear stories like this guy with the ulcerative colitis and to a lot of people, they go, oh, this sounds like snake oil. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, yeah. It, for, for someone like myself who has experienced it firsthand, it, it sort of blows my mind that it wasn't just so obvious to me back in the day. Like what sounded yeah, like snake oil place. once is now like it's it's common sense. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like we've been through so many different phases, you know, like there's there are like, I guess, medical um, professions like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, which is ancient Indian medicine. Like these are medicines that have largely lent on um, nutrition and lifestyle Mm -hmm. and natural products to, to heal the individual. And I guess it's just in the West where we've become detached from like what mother nature has given us to heal. And we've decided that we need to create pharmaceuticals and, you know, create that added cost to get somebody well. Mm. so um yeah there's there there are cultures that have been able to to you know take care of themselves and their cult and their communities and cultures just using you know what mother mother earth um, mother nature gave us but from a digestive health standpoint or a gut health standpoint if you want to use that term i think i think gut i don't know i find it misleading so i i prefer to use digestive health but um from a digestive health standpoint, there are definitely some starting starting points. And number one comes back to what you've already said that you sort of use as your guiding principle, which is to just eat real food. So to try and eat food that is in its in as close to its whole and natural state as possible. Because when you do that, you'll be avoiding a lot of the, I guess, elements which will detract from your digestive health. So that's things like um, processed carbohydrates or excess sugar because it can feed bacterial overgrowth, um, bacteria that largely live in our large intestine, but you know, for many reasons can also move up into our small intestine where we don't really want them. If we're eating whole and natural foods, we'll be avoiding trans fatty acids, which is also pro-inflammatory uh, and also things like preservatives and colorings and flavorings and things like that. Um, Guiding principle number two would be to focus on your eating behaviors. So, you know, rather than always eating on the run, eating standing up, um, I always recommend that people try and be really present when they're eating. So the analogy I often use is as if you're about to start a yoga class, can you please sit down at your table and take some deep breaths and then start to eat your meal? There are, you know, there are cultures that say grace before they eat. 
I never really grew up doing that, but there are cultures that, you know, sit around the table and before they tuck in, they talk about what they're grateful for or say a little something. And it's, you know, this like this age old way of getting people to stop and be present and to breathe before they start eating. And the problem with eating on the run, eating quickly, eating when you're distracted is because your body is not prioritizing digestion. So like we've got our sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the autonomic nervous system that is dominant when we're in like fight or flight mode. So when there's a perceived threat there that we have to you know, deal with. And then we've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is what will be um, in gear when we're like relaxed. And we call this the rest and digest state. Mm. And so if we're eating on the run, we're preoccupied, we're about to go into a meeting, we're trying to clear our inbox, we're in more of this sympathetic state, right? And in that state, your body is not prioritizing digestion. Um, it's actually prioritizing blood flow to the heart, the lung, the muscles, um, because, you know, decades gone by, centuries gone by, when we we're in that fight or flight state, we would have needed to be able to fight or flee because we may have had, you know, like a saber-toothed tiger on our back or someone from another tribe trying to steal some food. So our body still responds in the same way. And so if we're trying to eat when we're in that like sidetracked state, digestion won't be prioritized. And that can create problems for people. People wonder, why am I bloated? Um, why do I get a lot of gas? Why, do, why does food just feel heavy and not move through me? Why do I get heartburn? Often it comes down to the eating behaviors. So yeah, eating on the run, being distracted or being stressed when they're trying to eat. So they would actually be my two guiding principles is to focus on real food. So you're avoiding excess processed carbohydrates and trans fatty acids and colorings and preservatives. And then number two, look at your eating behaviors. So try and be as much as possible in this rest and digest relaxed state when you're eating. So you can actually allow your digestive organs to do what they need to do, you know, get blood flow to the organs, allow stomach acid to be released, allow enzymes to be released and, guess what? Then you can actually break down your food and you won't mm. have bloating and reflux and gas and, and things like that. Yeah. It's tempting for people to do a lot more. Like it's tempting for people to start buying kombucha and probiotics and other sort of gut healing foods. There's a lot of foods that are, uh, sorry, a lot of products that are marketed and packaged as like gut healing. Um, but I really think that if you haven't got those first two steps down pat, then that other stuff that you spend money on may not actually help you achieve what you want to achieve. Um, that's the way that I look at it anyway. If, yeah. you, if you are already doing those first two things, then great, start to invest in additions or testing to understand why those first two things aren't helping to alleviate your symptoms. Yeah, but first of all, eating behaviours and reduce your processed food consumption. Yeah, yeah. Are you on, like, do you use any additional supplements? Like you mentioned, like, these are the perks. I'm just curious. Yeah, you're saying like things like kombucha and um, like, do you use supplements at all? Are you a fan of supplements on top of your diet? Or do you think, think we can get enough of the nutrients that we need just from the food that we're, that we're eating? Oh, like, ideally, your diet would provide the nutrients that you need. Um, and it's a personal decision. Like, I, like, I've personally chosen to eat a largely plant-based diet, like 99% plant-based, 97% plant-based. Um, so for that reason, I do choose to use supplements, but mm. I'll supplement according to like what my personal goals are at the time, um, as opposed to necessarily using something forever and a day and not reassessing that. Um, so like I do supplement at the, at the moment for my gut, I use glutamine, which is an amino acid, which is really wonderful for soft tissue. Uh, and I, I really like that for my digestion, my gut. Um, I'm about to do my annual stool test. Um, so I'm not taking probiotics at the moment, but based on that stool test, yeah, I might introduce probiotics for a period of a couple of months um, to recalibrate things where they need recalibrating. That's just me. You know, I'm a bit of a gut nerd. I like to do my stool test every year and see what's happening in my microbiome and um, refine it accordingly. How do you do it? Like I've got that, um, I, I understand like the first tip. <laughs> like is this something that you're doing from home or you go in to see 
someone yet it'll test it out because i'm actually i'm in the pro this could be the intro i'm in the process i want to just i usually just go and get like a, a like an annual blood test or a blood test a couple of times a year and i was thinking oh, it's probably about that time and i've turned into a bit of a nerd for just trying to figure out like wh whatever ways i can to improve my health and if this is something i can add to the cards i'll do it but where do you even start with that because i feel like it'd be an awkward one to bring up at the wrong place yeah, well, um, yeah. I'm a podiatrist. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so like doctors do do stool tests, but usually they're for like clinical reasons. So they'll be screening for inflammation and irritable bowel disease, blood in the stool for cancer or parasites. You know, maybe someone's come back from overseas or a yes. holiday. Yes. <laughs> a holiday not like overseas. Like me, Bali, 2011 after our honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're screening for parasites. Uh -huh. The And I often use those tests. So I'll often use, like sort of lean on GPs to get that testing done. But the testing that I use in clinic for people with digestive issues and actually more broadly now, because we know that the gut is actually central to inflammation, detoxification, um, mood and mental health conditions, metabolic disease risk. So I actually do gut health testing in probably like one in, one in two of my clients, one in three, depending on, you know, where I'm at in the year. But it, the test that I'm doing is called Metabiome. So it's a stool smear yeah. sample. You just get a little smear of your stool on a big Q-tip. Mm. Um, you post it back to the lab and the lab then gives you feedback on all the bacterial species that have been detected in that Q-tip because it's DNA based. So they yeah. pick up a lot of information in that little smear and also what metabolites that bacteria are producing. So your bacteria, as I've said a few times, like your bacteria will work for you if you've got the right bacteria and if you're feeding it the right stuff. You know, are you feeding it lots of fiber or are you jamming lots of processed stuff and excess protein, you know, down your throat? Because that will ultimately end up, be what ends up feeding your gut bacteria. So this test allows you to see, are your bacteria working for you or are they contributing to the inflammation that I was talking about before? So Metabiome's new technology, it's a really cool test. It's $350. Uh, I really like it for assessing the gut microbiome. So it's pretty good for like biohacking and also prevention and also looking at those broader health conditions that can be affected by the gut that I just mentioned. There is, however, another stool test that I use, which is a bit more of like a stool collection sample. It's got some more clinical markers in there. So I use it for people that, you know, might be, you know, might have some undiagnosed like irritable bowel disease or celiac disease. And they don't really want to go to a gastroenterologist and get like a full colonoscopy done so we'll do that test um, which is $380 to do but another really great test and if anybody that wants to research it, it it's called the GI map test that's sort of like the global name for the test and there's lots of podcasts and stuff talking about GI map so yeah anyone can research that if they want to yeah. but that's how we do stool testing gee i tell you what i got that was the most i've talked about poo on this running podcast but so relevant it's interesting isn't it i was just i was laughing before as you were explaining it because i was i was thinking of the poor bloke at the lab who has to go through the process and i was like mate i wonder if he anticipated this is where he day, his day was going to end up like 15 years yeah. after high school probably yeah. a really impressive job to be fair but um it's just yeah, i guess you'd have to have a relatively strong stomach to be able to do it 100 <laughs> percent um, i'm surprised you haven't talked about poo before because i think i read the stats are like 40 percent of athletes have experienced gastrointestinal upset or 40 percent of runners experience gastrointestinal upset in in a in a race and training scenario so i don't know maybe that's another topic of conversation seriously yeah, regular yeah, no, I was just going to say, that'd be, that'd actually be a really interesting conversation because I think it'd be one, probably the reason is that people are embarrassed a lot of the time to bring up a topic 100%. like that. But I, I know through being in the running scene for a long time, that it's a big problem. So if, if you want to do round three in the future, we should do it and we could focus on something like that because I honestly think a lot of athletes wouldn't like to admit it, but I think the download numbers would be pretty impressive on that episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, we could open up some yeah shed some light on like perhaps how their fueling strategies aren't necessarily supporting their their, di their digestion in race day and their stress levels and maybe there are some things going on that they need to actually get some medical advice on yeah. but yeah it'll no, be a awesome. good, uh, good topic well, i told you we'd do 45 minutes and we've been going for an hour so i'm going to let you go and enjoy your friday afternoon but 
as always, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let everyone know where they can find you in the show notes and the introduction and everything like that. But I don't know, before we wrap it up, is there anything else you wanted to, to leave the audience with in terms of uh, whether it's where you, where they find you or, or, or just like a little practical takeaway? I know I haven't prepped you for that question, but just in case you had something <laughs> pressing that you'd like to finish with. I can handle it. Um, <laughs> so pretty much everything is over at my website, which is nutritionally.com. So that's n-u-t-r-i-t-i-o-n-e-l-l-y.com um and yeah everything there on sort of where i consult how you can book in um to work with me uh and then also like i've got a blog there with articles and recipes as well that that home of mine is really dedicated to plant-based nutrition so a lot of the blogs and blog articles and recipes are sort of dedicated to plant-based nutrition with you know, an absolute sort of lean towards um, not necessarily elite athletes, but people that want to get the best out of their body, you know, with exercise being one of those goals. I do have a separate program, which is called Plant-Based Kickstarter. Um, and that's something people can do, not necessarily working with me one-on-one, but it's a five-week program, which is, I guess, a stepping stone into fat adaptation, but on a plant-based diet. And so in that program, I sort of educate people on, you know, how to do it, what to eat, the macronutrient considerations, micronutrient considerations and gut health. And we go through lots in that program, but that that takes place a couple of times a year. And the next one starts on the 26th of July. So if anybody's listening to this and they're plant-based and they're, you know, interested in how to optimize their training recovery, um, then that would be a great program for them to consider. Yeah, but thanks awesome. for having me. Of great course, to have these no, you're always welcome here. It's, it's good to talk to you. And as I say, just, um, you and Ryan as well. I'm due to I'm due to catch up with him as as well because you're currently leading the relationship download stats. But uh, I'm sure he's pretty keen to. Uh, I don't think he would care. I, I've done a yoga class with him, and I don't think download numbers uh, on his radar at all. So, <laughs> well, hey, as I said, we'll we'll do it again soon if you're interested. And um, man, you're always welcome. That was fun. Cool. Thanks, Tyson. So,